Welcome to Noble Warrior. My name is CK Lin. Noble Warriors want to interview thought leaders about their journey to create a life of deep joy and purpose. My next guest is a partner of the Mayfield Fund. He invests in early stages technologies and have created more than $4 billion in total exit value. He has been on Forbes Midas list of top tech investors twice. He is a self-proclaimed hardcore body hacker and very accomplished actor and musician. He's passionate about bringing greater consciousness, connection, and healing the world. Please welcome Tim Chang. Thanks so much for having me, CK. It's a real honor to be here. The honor is mine. So happy belated birthday. You had told me before uh, we hit record that you have celebrated your birthday in Mexico City. You have uh, workshop your way or snuck in uh, some personal development workshops and, and men's and women's circle together. If you can tell us a little bit about that, I am curious about it. Yeah, absolutely. I just turned 50 on October 1st and, you know, it was a date I was honestly pretty terrified about. 50 is such a big milestone. And um, in many ways, I'd be totally at the point of what would normally be a, a midlife crisis, you know, kind of transitioning career path, thinking about what's next. Um, you know, big shifts in my personal life and family configuration, um, not necessarily a clear picture of what I would do for the next 50 years. But normally this is a time a lot of men probably go through kind of midlife crisis. And what I wanted to do is I've been so lucky to build up what I call my tribe, my chosen family over the last 10, 15 years, about a hundred incredible, incredible humans that on my 40th birthday party, I kidnapped them all to Portland and, and, uh, through the equivalent of a Tim conference, kind of like a joking homage to Ted with mm. my belief that everybody has the equivalent of the Ted talk inside, but you know, maybe without such the pressure, um, like adult show and tell. And my theory was, you know, if I love this person and that person thinks so highly of them and they don't know each other, they're going to definitely fall in love with each other. And, mm. um, it turned out to be true. Just the number of connections and magic that happened out of that, uh, has been so inspiring for me and really taught me so much, you know, these are folks that not just celebrating together, but building together, growing together, visioning, uh, even breaking down, uh, suffering, holding space for each other through our, our lowest points as well. You know, that was what I always really wanted to build the tribe I never had. As a little kid, we grew up moving around a lot. I never had a posse of friends. And so really in my mid to late thirties, I started thinking about how do I build the posse, the superhero league I always wanted. And mm. So I was able to, you know, mark that 10 year milestone from that 40th birthday in Mexico city. And I just kind of opened up and said, Hey, instead of a midlife crisis, I'm going to recruit you all into this with me, help me witness me, hold me accountable on figuring out what we all do together. We've had a lot mm. of celebration and play and growing, and we've had a lot of individual accomplishment checking off the boxes, but what can we do in service from here on out? In the next 50 years, how do we support mm. each other? And uh, in that way, I was trying to see if we could turn an otherwise midlife crisis into what I call a midlife chrysalis of how mm. we go together. Um, last thing I want to share is I learned in uh, Hindu spiritualism, there's four ashramas or four stages that often mm. mark a person's life. You know, act one is growing up, learning um, the student life. Act two is the householder life. Um, building a family, a career, individual accomplishment. Act three tends to be more becoming like a modern elder, um, 
paying it forward, you know, kind of shifting from me to focusing on we and act four is the renounced life of becoming more a spiritual ascetic. And I just mm. noticed many of us are shifting in and between act two and act three. And um, it can be a really lonely journey. And the thought was, if we each have our tribe, our chosen family to do that with, then we could support each other in it. And it doesn't have to be something that's so lonely and confusing. Mm. I love that. Is there any special reason for 100? Why not 25? Why not 50? Why not 300? Why 100? Uh, my great-grandfather lived to 102 or so, so I figure, ah, maybe I have the genetics <laughs> to go that long. And of course, you know, there is um, cybernetic technologies and biohacking and longevity and all those sorts of things which seem to be here and, and on the horizon. So, um, you know, I figure this is a nice round number to aim for. But, Got it. Uh, yeah, I had Chip Connolly actually give a speech, uh, a keynote talk my birthday, he's somebody who wrote to me building a modern elder academy, something I feel called mm -hmm. to ship into. And he was saying that with life expectancy now, from the age of 18, even at 50, I likely have 61% of my adult life ahead of me. That's really encouraging because instead of looking at it like, oh, I hit the peak, it's all downhill from here. It's almost mm -hmm. another way of saying, you know, with the right transition, I'm only getting started right now. It won't look the same as the path up the mountain. It'll probably be more about paying it forward, serving others, being a steward, being a mentor instead of individual achievement. But that's really exciting because it says maybe from here on out is where the real adventure begins. Mm, I love that outlook. And by the way, for any of you that haven't seen Tim, just Google Tim and you'll see how shredded he is. So uh, you look way good for <laughs> <laughs> for your age, quote unquote. So I, I think there's definitely a lot more than 100. I think you're underestimating yourself, honestly. Well, thank you. Um, I was actually asking about why the 100 people. Oh, so is there, people. Yeah, yeah, is there any reason um, why you kept it 100, why not 300 or 25? Sure. Um, yeah, you know, I wasn't setting out for a number originally. It was more sort of, I just started noticing these amazing people I'd be introduced to in my life. Um, and then more of them started popping out of the woodwork. And at first I was like, wow, this is incredible. Where have you guys been all my life? But then what I realized it was because I was more tuning into who I am. And mm. I've always believed that there's a notion of your vibe attracts your tribe. So it's mm -hmm. more that as you become fully realized in yourself and you know your own essence, you figure out your own gift and superpower, that enables you to see others who have started to tap into that almost guys, as you raise your vibration, you're more able to quickly spot that in other people. And mm -hmm. then it's beautiful because it's not about how long you've known each other. It's more sort of, wow, I get you. We're on the same path up the same mountain. Um, mm -hmm. Another saying I love is that, you know, there's many ways up the mountain, but only one view from the top. And mm -hmm. so what the feeling is like is that you're meeting kindred souls traveling up the same mountain, realizing the same truths, getting the same mountaintop, but just coming from infinitely different starting points. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing, I, I mean, everything you said about growing up, householder life, modern elder, paying it forward, uh, you know, what I, my experience of you, Tim, I mean, you and I, I don't know if you remember exactly how we met or when we met. You do? do. Okay, yeah. so we met each other 2012 at the TED mm -hmm. conference mm -hmm. where you perform as a part of CoverFlow. Right. 
And then my experience of you since then, it's been, wow, 10 years. My experience ever since has always been your, your, your helper. You're always in service of others. You're, to me, very unperturbed, very equanimous, always very, very helpful in, in any capacity that I see you in, in person, as a keynote speaker. And um, so that's my experience of you. Thank you. It means a lot to me. Um, honestly, the younger me had a lot of insecurity about like, what is my superpower? My great grandfather helped build the country of Taiwan. And my grandfather was like, you know, Alan Greenspan of Taiwan. And they had all these mm. big, you know, quote unquote, tagline headlines. And I always wondered, how am I going to live up to that? What, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to build? And mm. um, it was reflected to me at my birthday from a dear friend. He said, you know, what's interesting about you is you grew up loving superheroes and comic books and believe that everybody is a superpower, but for yourself, Tim, I see you not as Wolverine or Superman or Batman. You're more like Dr. Xavier in X-Men. Like you mm -hmm. love to help other people recognize their superhero and become that. And that really touched me and helped something click for me is that is true. I thought my whole life I needed to become a Superman or something, but what I realized is the joy was helping each person see their own superpower. Um, I never really knew how to put it in words, but when I had that reflected, it, it, it made sense to me. Um, yeah, and that helped me figure it out. It's like, oh yeah, that's my joy. That's what I do. I never really kind of knew how to explain it. And I would never dare say I'm a coach or a mentor or a teacher or anything. I think I'm probably too much imposter syndrome for that, but <laughs> more, um, let me put it this way. If I could explain what it feels like to be me, one of my first joys was um, getting reasonably good at guitar, you know, to the point that I could jam with any musician and kind of have my own flavor to add. And mm -hmm. so what it feels like is if you were to come to me and say, Tim, I have this beat or this groove or this idea for a song, let me play it for you. And when you do, I can sort of quickly tune into where you're going and have ideas. I'm like, oh, if you add this, what if you move this over here, let's spice it up with this. And if we remix it this way, um, that's the feeling I get. It's sort of my favorite is not me coming up with the idea, but jamming with other people, helping them, you know, evolve and expand and remix and edit and, um, you know, kind of, uh, kind of grow their idea from there. If that mm. makes sense. It, it totally does. I'm actually learning, um, the djembe right now. Nice. Yeah. I wanted to play in ceremonies. So that's, that's, mm. that's a huge inspiration for me. So, uh, and, and I, I love that your, your, your email is, well, I don't want to say in public, but, <laughs> but it has something to do with time. Right. So, so, so for me, Jembe has been instrumental for me to realize or alleviate mm -hmm. this pressure of finality yeah. of our life. Yeah. Because it, it's, 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 it's about keeping beats but yeah. you can do a lot of different things, the frills and all these things in between the beats. Yeah. So for me, that has some significant life lessons just from touching this instrument. Beautiful. So how important it is for you, my friend, as a musician, because that's how we first met as a musician to, to balance off with your, you know, your day job effectively as, a, as, a, as an investor, as a, as, a, as a helper in some other ways. Yeah, it's been everything. At first, I used to 
feel, again, a little insecurity about this because I identified as a creative, as a musician. When I was younger, that's what I wanted to be, you know, a professional musician. Um, and so I always thought like, oh, I'm this business person, but really I want to be a creative and I shouldn't talk too much about the creative stuff because it'll make me less serious or, you know, less credible as a business person. Similarly, in uh, performing arts and the music circles, I was like, oh, I don't want to talk too much about the business stuff because that'll make me less <laughs> I used to try to separate the two until one day it was too tiring to do so. And I just said, forget it. I'm just going to be who I am. I'm, I'm both. I'm a lot of things. I'm a weird hybrid of these. And the more I integrated them all, the more that, you know, people liked it. And so it taught me a valuable lesson of just live your truth. And in many ways, you find your unique identity as kind of a mashup mixtape of your different interests together. At mm -hmm. first, they might not make sense. You might not wonder, hey, how does Jembe tie in with like spirituality, tie in with like quantum physics? But the, the magic is you have a through line that ties them all together in your own way. And that is the magic you bring to the table of mm -hmm. the world. Like that'll be your unique potluck dish that you bring to the party, if that makes sense. It takes a while to figure out maybe what that mashup mixtape really is. But, you know, just keep tuning into the things that really turn you on. And eventually a unique through line, like I said, will reveal itself. I love that. Well, well yeah. So one of the, so we touch about your, your family history, mm -hmm. your passion for music and art, and obviously your day job, that's investment. And, you know, you have other passions, which is wisdom, spirituality, Burning Man art, and so all that combined to make a very unique you. You had mentioned in some of your talks that uh, it was My Valley's talk about 2018, I believe, <clears throat> where you talked about the importance of storytelling. What's your story? Figure it out, and then tell the story with you know uh, full potency, right? Yeah. Show up fully, shine brightly, and then connect others around it. To me, as a coach, as a course creator, part of my job really is to, everything you said, help them figure out what their story is, let go of the ones that don't serve them, reinforce yeah. the one that do, and then tell their story with full potency without any of the, the shyness around it, and then connect others and attract others around it. So uh, what, in your opinion, as a, um, someone who's, going the same journey. Uh, what have you figured out your own story? Mm -hmm. Like tools or experiences that help you figure out your superpower, your narrative about who you are. So you yeah. can rightly as you are. I love that question. Um, a couple things come to mind. When I was a kid, I, you know, I mentioned this before, I loved comic books and superheroes. And you know what I always noticed is that each one had their own unique origin story. And more often than not, at least mm. in the Marvel universe, the superpower often came from adapting to something that almost killed that person. And so mm. there's that old saying, with the wound comes the gift, right? Mm. Peter Parker's bitten by a spider and, you know, Bruce Banner gets irradiated. And these are normally things that would have killed them, but they adapted and gained a superpower out of it. I also noticed in a lot of TED Talks, many of those stories are also deeply personal, vulnerable shares about mm some insight that came out of some enormous challenge that would have 
otherwise crippled or killed them. So there's a similarity in that. So many times I think our story is tied to our core wound or maybe the, the trauma that we survived through. Um, mm -hmm. Another form of finding our story or superpower also comes from our purest form of play. What is that mm -hmm. thing that makes you feel most alive, most joyful, most curious? So I do believe stories can be rooted in this playful curiosity side, but they can also be rooted in, you know, deep tragedy or loss as well. And those often inform, you know, what it is that is our true gift to share. So mm. what is that saying? Like the wound provides the gift and that gift then is what, what we share. Um, mm -hmm. I've also heard that saying, I think it was Tony Robbins who might've said this, we are most passionate about that, which we are denied the most. So that mm -hmm. wanted is what you really want. And then you teach others how to get that. In my case, it was, I grew up, a, you know, a lonely kid moving around a lot. So I built the posse, the tribe that I wish I had. And, um, oh, I forgot to mention you had asked why a hundred. I think there's something natural to that too. Dunbar's number of 150, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. actually the original guest list was somewhere around 130. And so it kind of ties in with that. That's the size of the village. I think you can keep in your mind. Mm -hmm. um, all at once. So maybe that's a natural expansion limit of a, a deep tribe you can have. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, this was for me that origin of my story, moving around a lot, being a kid who was mostly more alone, um, you know, into things like video games, role-playing games, comic books, and then realizing, wow, those are really interesting metaphors for life. And also, like you'd mentioned, just this kind of person with a lot of weird disparate interests, music, mm -hmm. and math and computer programming, but also spirituality and, you know, immersive art and things that honestly I had a hard time tying together early on. It's like, why am I so scattered? But as I saw the through point, um, they became more and more related and linked. And that's when my mixtape revealed itself of sort of playfulness, creativity, you know, arts, technology, uh, as I went deeper down each rabbit hole, I saw, wow, they're actually really similar in practices. I believe that the more you go deep into mastery of one subject, it helps you relate to other subjects because there's a mm. lot of maybe underlying truths that are similar. So in that way, you know, studying math or studying magic kind of become the same thing, you know, over time. Studying uh, magic? Yeah. yeah magic <laughs> No, magic, magic in, in what you want to call magic, maybe in the study of performing magic or magic in the form of mm -hmm. mysticism or spirituality. But uh -huh. um, yeah, I almost believe that if you go far enough down one end of science and or you go far enough down the, the realm of, say, spirituality or consciousness, they bend around and meet somewhere similarly. Or like I said before, there's a similar mountaintop of fundamental truths underneath any human endeavor or pursuit, whether you get mm -hmm. there through pottery or yoga or poetry, I think that journey to those underlying truths is really similar. Well, I mean, you're huge on the meta cognition aspect of it, right? Frameworks and patterns and all these things. So I'm not surprised to hear that you venture into sort of the edge of a certain domain, and that's where another domain begins. In my mind, in my case, mm. I went through the path of having a PhD. Mm -hmm. and, and then I realized like, oh, there's at the end of it, um, that's where spirituality begins, mm -hmm. like faith, right? So, uh, because at the end of the day, there is an underlying assumption somewhere 
someone made an assumption somewhere and that's where faith begins right so anyways without getting into too esoteric there i love um, that that makes a lot of sense to me actually yeah okay thank you <laughs> um well how, how did you concretize or start to see patterns was there it like like a download like an epiphany like oh this is how music and mathematics and computer programming connect or were there some journaling practices some plant medicine involved or whatever the the modality is that really help you like aha there it is yeah my friend helped me point out the 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 dots looking backwards good question um i think that's something i've always been wired for i remember even uh <laughs> two that's two decades ago writing my essay for business schools um kind of talking a lot about for some reason i see dots connecting and patterns and i just i called it synthesis back then things always seemed more similar than than disparate or unalike to me and that's what made it really comforting to be in the world of uh, all these disciplines and i used to have fomo of like what if i'm not studying the right thing and so it's kind of this comfort of like actually everything ties together there's ways all sorts of things remix together and i learned this by as i was building this tribe something i really dreamed of is i'd love to have these you know ninja masters in lots of different domains whether it's in food or in written word and literature or in travel or in science and um there is a theory in human networks that the value of a network is directly correlated to the heterogeneity or the diversity of the members in that network so for example oh, well, if slow down if we, one more time yeah that the value of a network is directly related to the diversity of the members of that network and mm. another way to think of it is if we only knew michelin star chefs and only hung out with them then we'd go really deep in that area but would probably know the similar people and same things but if your tribe has a michelin star chef and a nobel prize winning physicist and you know somebody who's uh, a master dj or something the potential for these weird synergies and mashups gets even higher i've always loved the notion of one plus one equals three and sometimes having these cross connections across really different domains can drive mm. that so that was that was sort of my download of like wow i mean initially i did it kind of in a self-interested way as i have so many interests i love people that come from these different walks of life because then i get exposed to a lot of different viewpoints what i didn't realize is when they all cross connect all sorts of cool remix mashup things happen um mm. and so that's what i meant by sort of put together amazing people from lots of walks of life and magic naturally ensues mm, i love that so you are really building a professor xavier school of gifted mutants yeah totally and my favorite <laughs> my favorite game when i'm with them together is brag about them for each other in in other words do the intro of them for each other because the thing is with truly masterful people they're usually ridiculously humble and i think it's mm. because when you're a master in your domain you don't need to brag about it there's nothing to prove anymore there's no promotion you don't need to get more instagram followers or whatever so what i've noticed is a lot of these people i gravitate to are deeply humble and when they introduce themselves they might say something like you know i'm joe i'm into food and you're like <laughs> that's it 
And then that's, that's my favorite is to jump into like, not only is Joe into food, but he's done X, Y, or, you know, all, all that kind of thing. So it's such a joy to spotlight what's magical about, you know, these really humble people, um, to each other. And so that's why mm. my favorite game is like brag about them to each other. And, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. So with that superpower of yours, ability to stay connected with people, you know, building your tribe and you have now curated this extraordinary school of extraordinary powers. Um, and you said that you do this gathering once a year. I'm curious, what's that guy's name? Oh man, I don't remember. He wrote a book about putting extraordinary people together and they have dinners all the time. And was that John Levy with, um, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. That's, that's right. right. That's right. Uh -huh. So he does that regularly, quote, yeah. quote unquote, scaled it. Right. That's right. So in your case, if this is something that you enjoy, instead of doing it once every 10 years, are there some other smaller way that you can do this more? And I'm asking this because here, here's my dream, my fantasy. Because <clears throat> I've talked to all these extraordinary guests yeah. on my Noble Warrior podcast. Yeah. My my dream, my fantasy is, hey, let me actually gather these people and do a plant medicine ceremony together. How cool would that be? Like, hey, so-and-so, and you really get to meet each other as spiritual beings living an yes. extraordinary human life. So anyway. So. That would be. Um, to that, I'd love to help you with that. Um, oh, so cool. That's, Thank you. What, and here, here's, here's how I think it could happen. You know, my path has been first finding and connecting these amazing people, then creating these transformative, truly bonding, you know, gatherings that foster community, self-growth, learning. The next step is I've always been fascinated with real estate and, and places, crafting just really special places. And it wasn't for investment purposes or rental income, that kind of thing. I'm not really interested in like Airbnb rentals just for money. But what I realized is that it's the third piece of the equation for me, spaces that are intentional containers and mm. playgrounds for people to work their magic. And I think that people like you, people in my tribe, as we evolve, we're becoming more leaders and, and modern elders. With that, there's a lot of gathering of others that we know, sharing wisdoms, connecting people. And I'd love nothing more than for the properties I have to serve as these intentional places for people like you to work your magic, you know? So mm. whether uh, it's uh, villas in Bali or uh, a farm in Bolinas or whatnot, I would love to support you in that and we'll chat offline about that. But I think more and more people will become not just storytellers, but also community nodes and gatherers of people of mm. intentional experiences together. Well, thank you so much. I, I so appreciate it. See, I mean, there you go again, right? Always being of service to others. Thank you so much. I, I so appreciate it. Do you say, yeah. by the way, this, I'm going down the different rabbit holes. Uh -huh. Um, Pulling back if you want to say, hey, let's get on track. But do you feel like that ability to add value or to really help someone, right? Empower people, support people with their dreams is 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 part of your magic of gathering people of such extraordinary powers? I I, I guess it is. Um the shadow work I've done is to also tune into how much of this is me being a people pleaser or a nice guy, you know, at its root, how much of it is that I'm hoping for something back, whether it's affirmation or validation or love or affection back versus just the joy of that giving. That's my deeply vulnerable practice of what I'm trying to tune into myself. What my hope is that 
it's truly out of the desire to, to see people shine and mm -hmm. that they will then take that light and help other people shine. Um, but yeah, it is something I've wrestled with because I grew up with Asian tiger parents and mm -hmm. I grew up in a household that didn't have a whole lot of, yeah, we didn't grow up with a whole lot of, I love you or I'm proud of you or hugs and that sort of thing. So of course I crave those things. And because everything was measured by what'd you get on your test? And you know, <laughs> I remember like coming home, I was like, I got 97 on the AP chemistry test. And then being met with what happened to the other three points. <laughs> so, well, I'm manufactured to be a high performance machine by other people's standards. And mm -hmm. so is there any debt, is there any question that, you know, there's a pleaser part of me or external validation seeking side. And those are things I'm seeking to let go of, to be more internally motivated, more internally affirmed. Um, needing less of that from other people, but, um, I, I do feel, you know, pretty authentic when I say helping or enabling other people to shine by just reflecting their magic to them and seeing them, you know, kind of grow is absolutely joyful. And I need mm -hmm. nothing, nothing back from that. I don't need attribution, affirmation. I don't need 10% of future earnings. Absolutely. What I do hope mm -hmm. is that that will inspire people to pay it forward in their own way and help other people light up their light, you know? So mm -hmm. I have this formula I, I found for myself. I wonder if you relate to this too, but any of our first real job is to heal our own wounds, you know, mm -hmm. our core wound, our trauma, whatever epigenetic baggage we picked up with, with that healing comes deeper connection with ourself, our story mm -hmm. that you mentioned mm -hmm. that we find, and then that reveals our true form of play. You know, the thing that makes us feel most alive, our special gift. Then if we can do that play, not just for individual indulgence or personal career or achievement, but if you can turn your play into a service to others, to inspire and light up others, that is a pretty good recipe for a beautiful life because then mm -hmm. other people's play will be revealed in service to others. Mm -hmm. The image I have is I'm just a tiny candle. I've got my little spark. If that can help light up other candles, then that light kind of carries on in ways I'll never know or see way after the original candle has long since been extinguished, you know? So I love that. That's yeah. a great legacy. That's a better legacy than company names or scholarships or fellowships or buildings that'll be dust in a hundred years. I think the mm -hmm. only legacy I'll ever have is the way I made people feel while I was here and how that passed on to others. Mm, I love that. I mean, I'm hundred percent aligned. Uh, with that narrative. Uh, I mean, hence one of my core reason to do this podcast is yeah. yes, I enjoy mm. deeply philosophical conversations. There's a little bit of self-serving, absolutely. But my hope, and it has come back to me already that people listen to this, shift their narrative, their what they see as possible yeah. and take some action around it. And and case in point, case in point, <clears throat> one of the listeners was about to, you know, go through their dark day of the soul, but was about mm -hmm. to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. And then another guest was very vulnerable and sharing, like, "Hey, I went through that phase. Here's what happened, and here's the beautiful things happen uh, by choosing otherwise, by living a powerful life." That person yeah. heard it, and then we literally save a life you know, from that podcast. So yeah. if there's any doubt that this podcast made a difference to anyone, just that alone is made it whole, you know, worth it. So that's so beautiful. And it's, that's, that's it. You're a living example of it. 
your joy, your gift is stories, helping other people find their stories. And in doing that, it ends up being of service and can inspire, mm. like you said, help other people tune into their story or shift their story. Yeah. One of the practices that I do is mm. if I see someone shining a light, mm -hmm. I make a point to tell them like, hey, yes. I saw you doing this, um, you know, take it for what's worth. There you go. You know, I saw that, you. I see that's you. what we're here to do. And that's such a great reminder. We're here as mirrors for the best, sometimes worst of each other. But um, we need that because in our own hero's journey, it's hard to see the path of our hero's journey while we're in it. But sometimes it's so e easy and obvious to see other people's path of their hero's journey. So that's why we need each other to point those things out. Um, and as we see ourselves reflected by others, we also see ourselves reflected in other people's journeys. And that's nice because then you don't feel so lonely. You kind of get that feeling of like, oh my gosh, we're all wrestling with the same six things in different formats. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, as a personal practice, um, since you're a consciousness hacker, a biohacker, and you're, you're very much into the meta patterns, do you draw your life and figure out the stories? Do you journal? Do you have, um, what do you call those things? Um, Oh man, community discourse, workshops to look at it from a higher perspective. Yeah, yeah. You know, I try to do some mindfulness and, and prayer practices. Um, I admit it's not always daily, getting back to that. Um, been doing more journaling and writing and, and, and reading, but gathering has always been a great one for me. Um, I've always loved, like I said, these larger gatherings, but the real joy is frequent smaller ones, whether it's, you know, Jeffersonian dinner salons to focus on one topic or uh, house parties that are intentional where um, we might focus on one or two guests that have a particular story or talent they want to show or demo uh, mm. and then do a group meditation together or sound bath together. And that might lead to more, you know, kind of late night DJ set or something or, you know, kind of a, a local chef sharing food or potluck style. But even a house party can be made pretty intentional too. So I really like that notion of earned celebration, not just getting mm. together, you know, for let's have happy hour. That, that's great and all, but there could be a, a, an intention with it, like a set and setting for it, just like with plant medicines and those sorts of things. So um, that often for me is deeply inspiring. And my favorite is to have a tone of vulnerability and authenticity in these mm. too. Um, I learned this from Keith Frazzi. He'll do dinner parties mm. and the self-introduction is say your name. You can give maybe, you know, just one sentence of what you do, but more importantly, share the thing that you're most confused or struggling with in life right now. And mm. by like the third or fourth person, people are just spilling their guts and sharing their deepest, you know, kind of darkest things and in tears and, and people feel so connected by the end of that. Right. So wow. I really believe that vulnerability is one of the greatest bonding superpowers. We all are looking for permission to be authentic and vulnerable. We're just looking for permission to do so. Mm. Yeah, breaking bread is one of those human traditions that just connect people deeply, right? especially over music and or this particular intention of vulnerability. And John Levy has, well, scaled that into a global thing that he does. Do okay. you feel as a participant, but also as someone who looks like scaling things all day, do you think that's scalable? 
I, I think it's scalable at the human level as opposed to it's an online platform and you know, uh, billions. And, um, this has been a big shift for me. You know, I've spent more than 20 years in Silicon Valley venture capital, worshiping at the church of growth at all costs. And I mm -hmm. no longer subscribe to that. I'll go mm -hmm. as far to say, I think our craziness of scaling is what's gotten the world into this mess. Mm -hmm. Um, I think scaling exponentially is a human construct. I don't think nature scales that way. I think nails, nature scales at a more healthy way that's healthy at every scale. The only thing that keeps going up into the right exponentially in nature is called cancer. And that scales up until the host organism dies. So I really had my mind shifted when I studied things like permaculture, regenerative agriculture, circular economies, just again, studying nature and how nature grows in a more often healthy balanced pace than us humans that love to take one thing and scale the crap out of it at the cost of everything else. So I actually would like to dismantle our church of scale. I think mm. we would, I think that's what I think has led to, you know, the, the erosion of soil in nature leading to climate change, leading to food disaster, leading to all these things, right? This maniacal focus on, on hyperscale. So to me, the heart of conscious capitalism is looking at the models that we look at, our intentions, our motivations, um, and, and the energy with which we wield these exponential technologies like AI, machine learning, et cetera, right? These tools and technologies aren't bad per se. What matters is the intention and the mm -hmm. goals that we use them with. That's an internal practice. That's where technology needs to meet spirituality and consciousness to understand mm -hmm. why, not just the what, the how much, the who, the when, why are we doing these things? Yeah. I don't see a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm searching. I mean, you don't know this, but the origin of Noble Warrior mm. is 2018. I saw this Mongolian huge, you know, five-story statue um, armor. And mm -hmm. to me, it was a symbolism that I've been searching for, the intersection between spirituality and entrepreneurship. That was yes. really the origin of Noble Warrior. And and uh, obviously, I'm deeply passionate about plant medicine, consciousness hacking, uh, technology, but also spirituality as well. I, I just don't hear enough. I, I, so there's people who talk about technology, growth at all costs, as you call it. Uh, and then spirituality, that's all about going back to nature, you know, ancestry and, you know, paying respect to the spirit but I'm a modern householder, right? Yeah. So I, I want to talk, you know, think about ways to practice both. I just don't hear enough people talking about it per se. So in your practice, who or what books or anyone that we can direct people towards, if this is something that they're passionate yeah. about? A few uh, areas I could point to that have been helpful for me. There is a, a rise and I think a shift for conscious capitalism or what I like to call business for better, not business as usual. Um, there's groups like mm -hmm. Purpose Economy. There's uh, Jun Young, um, you know, what he's been focused on, steward ownership. Um, but Jun Young, yeah, he was on the podcast. Yeah, he's great. You know, yeah. he's been a big influence for me on what he's doing with um, stakeholder capitalism, not just shareholder capitalism, right? 
Um, there is Bo Xiao with Evolve Venture Forum, what he's been doing there. Kiri Yang with Second Time Founders, asking repeat founders to dig deeper into the why of what they're doing. You know, uh, so there's a lot of these folks that are pioneering the way. And a great example I've been studying lately is what Patagonia just did to mm -hmm. shift to, you know, more stakeholder uh, governance than just shareholder ones. Um, so, yeah, I'm really interested in these newer models. Um, Marshall McLuhan is famous for that, that, that saying, you know, the message uh, is the medium. The medium becomes the message, right, of how technology shapes what we say um, in a similar way. I kind of view the model, the business model as the motivator and the wound underneath the founders as the why they're doing mm. Marvel Blue. Um, I've always believed if you want to understand why an organization does anything, why it does, follow the business model, follow the dollars. If you mm. want to understand why an individual often does what he or she does, study their core wound. Because a lot mm. of times everything we do is motivated by trying to adapt to or compensate for that core wound, right? So the, again, back to intentions. The intentions underneath these things and the business models we we choose shapes all that behavior. So going to first principles and studying the models we use, the governance structures, and even deeper, our spiritual uh, motivations, our, our our energetic states. You know, are we in scarcity? Are we in abundance? Are we in curiosity or play? Are we in you know ego validation mode? These all explain you know a lot of the behaviors that we have and how we do the things we do. Mm. I love that. So on Noble Warrior, we do talk about the cool wounds a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, we say our superpower, the source of our superpower is uh, lies in the identification of our core wounds. And mm -hmm. our purpose lies in the giving away of whatever we, we give to others. That's exactly um, it. So what are some of the modalities that you have, either as a practitioner yourself, actually, I mean, I, Revise my question a bit. Mm -hmm. What are some modalities that help you identify your own four wounds the most? Stage one of a lot of my journey was the internal work. Mm -hmm. What I mentioned is healing. You know, those have been everything from um, finding more authentic connection in places like Burning Man, mm -hmm. um, opening and awakening through things like plant medicine, um, meditation, spiritual practice. Also, deeper analysis than to turn downloads and insights into, you know, lifestyle changes and behaviors that can be therapy, coaching, intensive workshops like Hoffman Process, um, peer supported groups like Conscious Leadership Group. There's so many of these, um, you know, Joe Hudson was an amazing coach in this. Uh, it's, it's the combination of getting the downloads, but then the integration of then walking the talk each day. You know, I know there's a lot of interest in psychedelics and plant medicine for spiritual awakening, um, which I firmly believe and support heavily, but I do worry that many people chase the molecules too much. Mm -hmm. I like to believe the, the molecules are the doorway, but the actual medicine is the ongoing integration and mm -hmm. putting those downloads into practice. And that's the hard work. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of like, if you want to get in shape, it's the 20 minutes a day that'll do lots more than like the two hours once a week kind of thing, you know? So mm -hmm. it's that ongoing practice. Um, and I have to say, having, finding your tribe of people that'll hold you accountable it, and to do that work together with makes all the difference in the world. I think that's what the original purpose of church was, right? That mm -hmm. community that witnesses you, but holds you accountable. 
Um, mm. It's why I believe every man needs a men's circle. Every woman mm -hmm. needs a woman's circle as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm huge on those, as, as, as you know. Uh, well, I mean, let's talk about it for a bit. <clears throat> because to me, my journey has been believer. I, mean, I bought the whole thing of the self-help industry promise. Mm -hmm. um, you know, self-made man, right? I can just learn about these things and do it myself. And that works to some extent. But if I'm honest, I think group-based transformation is way better, way faster than the solo work that one does. Because I'm not someone who can go into the cave and come out enlightened. Like I just, I've done it for four decades and just hasn't worked for me. <laughs> so, but group-based, I'm, I'm a huge believer in that. Is there anything that you want to double click on regarding the solo work versus the, the group-based transformation? Absolutely. I, I've experienced those different modalities and you're right. I, I have done a lot on the individual side. Uh, the problem with that is, you know, you can fall in and out or we can deceive ourselves easily too as well. And, um, it can be isolating and lonely. Um, I felt so much support often through say a coach or mentor led peer cohort. Mm. I think it's because in the cohort, I see myself reflected in, in, in the others and learn so much from their stories and there's a group accountability that I don't want to let them down. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and vice versa. I've seen this work really well in everything from weight loss to fitness to, you know, kind of, um, uh, peer support in other areas. Um, so there's something really magical about that container of a group that's witnessing and vulnerable and authentic with each other and holding each other accountable. You know, it's mm -hmm. powerful when people you respect that, that you love will call you out and be like, Hey, I sense some bullshit in what you're saying, you know, mm -hmm. really your truth. Again, we are mirrors for each other, right? So mm -hmm. I, I do believe that the, the cohorts and the groups, the community support is really powerful. And to me, it reminds me of, you know, we were kind of made to be tribal or village-like creatures. The original Netflix was probably sitting around the campfire, reading stories, singing songs, dancing, cuddle puddling, all these things. And, um, you know, being held accountable by by my family, by peers, right? So I think we seek that. We've gotten away with, from that with the whole suburban nuclear family isolationism, but we all are craving that return to connection again. Are there, yeah, what, what are some of the criteria for you in terms of choosing like, hey, I like this group or or I I couldn't find anything like my podcast that is in a, as an example, therefore I'm going to start one. What kind of criteria do you have on a personal basis? For me, I think it's um, less so accomplishment or something on a resume. It's more sort of like, um, for lack of a better term, the heart space they come from. Is their energy one that is deeply curious, vulnerable, caring and generous, but also self-aware? And I think those tie together, you know, that self-awareness. I love when people are super open-hearted and not just unafraid, but also interested to go into those crunchy areas that other people might draw away from like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. But I don't know. For me, I've always believed the way out is through, not by mm -hmm. avoiding, deflecting or whatever, or making excuses or intellectualizing, but leaning in 
the thing that's most uncomfortable is where all the gold is. And so I, I like to try to adopt something where there's no topic that's taboo to talk about. And, mm. you know, the thing that is uncomfortable is the thing I want to lean into head on with you because that's where we can really connect, you know? Um, mm. Yeah. So that vulnerability, that willingness to be absolutely authentic um, is something I crave more and more of, you know, having spent decades in the Valley trying to keep that face of I'm crushing it. I know what's going on. <laughs> right. When, when, the, when the truth is, ah, hell if I know we're making it up as we go. Mm. Well, thanks for being very transparent about that. I mean, I think for me that, the telltale sign of someone who's a master is someone who, yes, I know my stuff and also I'm learning mm. and I'm humble. And, and there are things that I can also admit that I don't know. To me, that's the perspective of someone who's secure with themselves versus mm. someone, when someone tells me like I'm crushing it in all aspects of my life, to me, that's a sign that maybe I'm dealing with a very insecure person. Yeah, that's, that's my point of view. There, I, I, the thing is, there's such a performative pressure, you know, mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley and social media and whatnot. Um, we a lot of times we feel like we have to put that face on, um, you know, so we're not we're not ostracized, we're taken seriously. Um, but you are right. Is uh, if we really have more security that comes from mastery of something, there's less a need to prove anything. And the truest masters of anything always have a bit of that beginner's mindset as well, right? And I, I like to think, I hope that the best motivator of all is curiosity, right? Mm. Um, I define mastery as ever finer attention to ever increasingly nuanced details. That's mm -hmm. the difference between somebody who's like a wine enthusiast versus a sommelier. You just get these ever sensitive, more fractal detail understandings of the little nuances. And I think curiosity is what often drives that. Mm. Um, so I'm a huge student of life. And in, in all conversations, I like to, you know, ask people, this is CK's famous last question. The answer uh, question is, mm. hey, what did you get from this conversation? And what action are you going to take on? Right. And then some people love it. Some people hate it. So here, here's the question for you, Tim. Yeah. There's a difference between my fucking it and really trying to understand the nuance of things for you what's the discernment what's the line mm. that's a really good one i i'm somebody who is highly in my head often is intellectualizing things rationalizing things and honestly what you call mind fucking is i'm often second guessing or doubting myself right um i'm finding something in my life now which is the desire to tune more into my body, my emotions, maybe even my spirit. And what I found in doing, you know, things like Hoffman process and, and other work too, is a lot of my tension is whenever I feel like I'm at war with myself. And I bet all of us are at war with ourselves constantly. Imagine, you know, your intellect trying to override what your body is saying, the sensations there, maybe in the gut versus the needs of your wounded emotional child versus then the other, maybe higher spiritual self side of you. It's a constant internal debate going on between these three or four sides of myself is when I feel most out of balance. And this is where meditation uh, or slowing things down can help and being able to 
understand which side of me has the microphone, right? Mm. And balancing it out. I realize most of my life, my intellect has had the microphone. It's what's mm -hmm. helped me get to where I am. But a lot of times where I've had conflict is when my body had sensations of like, oh, this doesn't feel good. Or I don't think this is truly authentic to what I actually want. Um, those alarm bells, I tend to override. And my practice now is to maybe listen and tune into sensations first, even if I don't understand them, even if I can't put explanation to them, but give it credence and equal voice. You know, there, mm. you, you know this, right? The, the intelligence is spread throughout the body. And now there's such a strong link of gut brain connection that it's pretty much widely believed that intelligence also sits in our gut, literally physically, as well as in our brains. And so there's that saying, feel it in your gut. I'm now thoroughly convinced the body contains a lot of wisdom and early warning signals that our, our brains don't fully understand. And I want to learn to honor that. So it's really learning to be embodied as opposed to just in my head, where I'll be honest, I'll spin and loop and ruminate and go back and forth and self-doubt and second guess and hyper-rationalize. Um, it's the mind fuckery, as you said, where mm. sometimes it's the body when it feels like firm and calm and grounded, like that's sometimes deeper knowing than even what happens up here. Mm. Well, I'm smiling throughout because I, I relate. I understand you very well. Really? So what would you say to the younger CKs and the Tims who hyper-rationalize, hyper-in you know, the head to listen to the body or the emotions more? Um, I would have said to younger me and younger you is learn to become friends with your feelings, like practice naming what they are. You know, um, have you ever seen the color wheel of emotions? It's, it's like a... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful, right? And when I first saw that, it made me realize I have such a limited vocabulary when it comes mm -hmm. to talking about my emotional state or my feelings. Mm -hmm. And that is emotional intelligence, emotional self-awareness. Um, and get to know that, get to even practice being able to say, I feel as much as you say, I think, right? Mm -hmm. um, There's an amazing founder I once met and she said, you know, whenever employees come to me on something, you know, I'll say to them, well, you just told me what you thought about that issue. How do you feel about it? And it was really interesting because sometimes that would reveal the root of the tension or the confusion of the argument faster than the reasons behind it. So mm. um, I, I wonder if you and I grew up with similar cultures, being Asian, having Asian tiger parents, where we didn't really express our feelings a whole lot, right? And so um, I know for me, that was never a muscle I had developed growing up. So I probably would have told younger me and younger you is to practice developing that muscle that how you feel is just as important as how you think and mm. it's okay it's also okay to feel scared or feel bad about some things right mm. so so let me push you a little bit for for more context around it sure so the younger ck i don't know the younger oh. tim i don't let's say the younger ck would say why do i need to do that nah that's you know i don't need that you know rational Rationality is the way, so what mm -hmm. would you say? I would say uh, that for me and for you, we probably needed more hugs when we didn't, <laughs> when we didn't feel good about something that, you know, toughen up and, you know, just deal with it. Mm -hmm. Doesn't honor what you feel inside. And 
more to the point, we'll become numb to those feelings and either become robotic. And mm. worse yet, the feelings that don't get expressed will sit there and stew and just get stuck in the body and then turn into blockages or worse yet, turn into disease over time. And so mm. it's not just a matter of being tough or smart. It's a matter of staying healthy. Mm. Yeah. I would say to the younger CK that, I mean, you, you, you hit it right around the uh, head of the nail. You know how, you know how the liveness that you crave, mm -hmm. the joy, the passion mm -hmm. the highlights, the juice of life. Uh, this is the access. If you want more of that, yeah, get to know your body, get to know your emotionalities because otherwise you're just depriving yourself of a good life. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. That'd be a fun way to say it is like, Hey, why would you only watch TV in black and white? Wouldn't you want all the colors? Yes. Mm -hmm. Or why would you want to live in only two dimensions? Why wouldn't you want to live in 3D? Mm. So on that note of 3D, I'm curious, uh, in your Twitter bio, you said working towards becoming nobody, everybody, neither striving or surviving, but hopefully in service. Yeah. So it's very much about not, oh, actually, you know what? Why don't you articulate, um, why did you put that in your bio? I once had it posed to me, um, look, Tim, there's only two questions you really have to think about. One is who are you really? Mm -hmm. And what do you really want? Those are the cardinal mm -hmm. questions. And in deep meditation or other spiritual practices, plant medicine work, when I really think about those things, you know, it's like an onion. You start with the basics. Who am I? I'm a man, I'm a VC, I'm a father, I'm a whatever. But each of those, as you strip it away and go deeper and deeper and deeper, you can peel away all layers of that onion until I got to for myself. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm nothing but a story that I construct with, for myself and with others. And if I let go of that, I'm nobody, but also I'm a little bit of everybody because we're interconnected. And then even beneath that, I'm just this tiny little fractal representation of God, him or herself. And mm -hmm. so I am nobody. I'm everybody. I am God, source consciousness, whatever you call it. Um, the image I have is I'm a very particular color. That is the color of Tim, mm -hmm. with part of the collective of white light. And white light is made up of all these infinite different shades of colors. Each mm. of it's only that one color that only we can uniquely represent, but the collection of all those is white light, right? Mm. Then on the, what do I really want? You know, initially it was like, oh, I want to be loved and affirmed and validated. I want to know that I'm helpful, like an onion peeling all those away. Mm. For me at the end of it is like, I want to stop craving. I want to stop wanting anything that badly, you know, mm. almost a surrender from ego or, or scarcity. Um, then underneath, I, I want to just play. I want to, I, I want to express my true nature. Um, and I want to do so in a way that hopefully is of service that maybe lights up other people's true nature, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of where I got to, uh, with a lot of these cardinal questions for myself. Mm. Yeah. People think that those questions are easy. 
But if you dig deep enough into it, I mean, to me anyway, those two questions, who are you really, what do you really want, takes a lifetime to answer. Yeah. And the funny part, here's the irony. I think of this as one of the cosmic jokes. A lot mm. of times you figure out who you are and what you want by stepping through who you are not and what you do not want. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's two ways to paint the chair. You can paint the chair or you can paint everything around the chair. And I feel like that's what so many of us do in life is we're trying all of these different identities and settings and places and peoples. And, and in a way it's carving away the extra bits in the block of concrete or the block of marble till we reveal the, 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 the inner essence statue inside, you know, mm. what we're left with after all of trying those things. Mm. Yeah. One question that I, I think about a lot you know, in, in line of that is the question of faith. Because mm-hmm. I'm very much a generalist, mm-hmm. you know, in a negative sense, dabbling, right? Mm-hmm. But in a positive sense, I like to explore different things, right? So it depends on the context, the narrative that I have in my head. So I'm very much of a generalist. I like, mm-hmm. I'm really curious about lots of different topics. And, and I told one of my friends that, hey, um, for some people, they just dive head in about the whole philosophy of something wholesale without really questioning it. But I, I like pick and choose what works for me. And in my yeah. mind, the metaphor is I'm chiseling, yeah. right? I'm chiseling yeah. away things that really resonates with me and I'm chiseling away more and more and, and that's okay. Right. So I'm curious to know your perspective around <clears throat> buying something wholesale, right? Believing a philosophy fully without question, or are you more of a chiseler? where you pick and choose and you really think about like what, who you truly are, what you truly, truly want, what you truly believe. Yeah. I grew up in a pretty deeply conservative Christian household and it was pretty much just believe in God this way. Don't question anything. Um, you know, I tried it as a child. When I got to college, I was exposed to other religions and other faiths. And as I learned about them, I remember being really confused. Like, wait a minute, we seem to be espousing the same truths and values. Why are we killing each other over them? And that's how I personally became very mistrustful of organized religion. You know, I started to see it more as a power structure, uh, more about Mm -hmm. control, but the Mm -hmm. underlying truths being espoused were the same, right? Again, one mountaintop, many flavors or packaging or maybe even marketing brands. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I now view it as just find, like you said, find your faith, whatever it is. For some, they just adopt the one thing that works for them and they don't question or wonder. For some of us, we got to wander off-road and try lots of things and make our own mixtape of those. But um, for me, I do like to explore and question and put together the poor parts that work for me. Um, I like to think that in many ways, that's the difference between religion versus spirituality. Religion sometimes is Here's the way, trust this, just practice this, no questions needed. The other of spirituality is much more choose your own adventure and mm. practices. I don't know what your answer is. Your mileage may vary. Go wander through the woods, go try different things until you create and figure out the path that works for you. Mm. Scary because there's no hack for it. And, mm-hmm. you know, we mentioned that I've been known before for espousing like biohacking, longevity hacking, consciousness hacking. Mm. I realize there is no hack. Hacking mm-hmm. is kind of like a Silicon Valley shortcut that we're looking for, like, give me the five tips or give me the fastest way there. And mm-hmm. I feel like the, the truest spiritual path is 
not the hack. It's actually being lost in the woods, wandering around pointlessly, floating in limbo, you know, going through the dark night of the soul, as we talked about, until, you know, you start to cobble together the, the, the truths, the mixtape that works for you. And that's a slow, arduous, confusing, painful process often. There's no hack or shortcut. So in this point in my life, I don't believe in hacks anymore. I think hacks mm. kind of like a way that we want to skip things or shortcut or jump to the end of things, trying to find a cheat code to things. The same thing is like, give me a magic pill that solves all my issues. When really the ultimate biohack is sleep well, meditate, mm. watch your food intake, eat cleanly, loving relationships, you know, exercise. It sounds really boring, but that's what it is. It's integration, not the molecule. Yep. We do we talk about that point a lot too on the No Warrior podcast. Yeah. A lot of people think that the molecule, as you call it, is, is the work. But really, to me, mm -hmm. that may be 10%, but the rest, 90%, is the daily practice, the, yeah. the, the discerning of what it is, to bring the insight and the lesson into your behavior, into your life, ongoingly, moment to moment. So You got it. That's exactly right. We're changing yeah. our story, our identity. And so those, those downloads become behavior, become habit, then become identity. Yeah. Well, I want to bring us back to why I really wanted, I was inspired to say, hey, Tim, let's, let's do a podcast yeah. because you are in a unique position where <laughs> you are an investor still and you have lived or, uh, preach the, the church of growth at all costs, so to speak, mm -hmm. although consciously. And now you're looking into, hey, let me uh, dismantle that. Let me uh, go into more of a sustainable way of injecting fuel onto an idea that's going to help perpetuate, you know, throughout time. Uh, I'm, these are my interpretation. These are not your words. So what are some of the models that have you seen that works well uh, are leading the pack. And you, you mentioned a few names, Bo Shao, Second Time Founders, Patagonia, Joan Yoon. What, what's working and what's not working from your perspective? Totally. Um, there's been a lot of talk that maybe we're at end stage capitalism, meaning this model of just produce more and endless consumptive capitalism is, you know, hitting a wall. In some ways we're seeing that. We're seeing the end of globalization. We're seeing supply chain limitations ever since COVID. We're in a global trade war with China right now, right? Um, everything takes much longer. It's more expensive. We have inflation, we have recession. We have a lot of potentially bad stuff going on. Plus, you know, the verge of climate collapse in many other ways too. And it's uh, thought that- I like how you just kind of, yeah, plus climate collapse. There's so many things, right? I view this as symptoms of maybe the models and the structures um, that, that we've used, you know, and, and again, the intention was make more, sell more, make more, sell more. We see that in America. We just measure how many units produced profit margins, price per mm -hmm. share, and most of the crap we produce ends up in people's garages, not used. We just look at amounts sold and made. Maybe the better metric and model is what's the percentage of utilization of stuff that's already out there. That would be different than make more, sell more, make more, sell more endlessly up and to the right, you know? And um, we're at a time now where I think this is affecting um, not just the economy, but our ecology, 
so much of the crap ends up in landfills or in water and is affecting our health, which leads to more, you know, kind of drug-based uh, pharma and healthcare systems looking for that silver bullet. What it boils down to for me, in architecture, there's that famous saying, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. I think it's the same for technology and tools. We build and create our tools and tech and thereafter they, they affect us. The ultimate example is artificial intelligence. AI is like the ultimate child of humanity. Mm -hmm. First try to shape it in our own image to teach it, but now it's teaching us. It's showing things we hadn't seen. And in a way it's a mirror of who we are, right? So back to this notion, I said the intention of how we use our tools and technology is what matters. It's not that the tools or technology are bad. They can be used to save, they can be weaponized, right? And this is why I like to think your question was what models, what frameworks? We went from mass production to information age. We've now shifted to attention economy. We've seen everything with engagement hijacking and digital opioids and mimetic warfare. I think what's coming next is where consciousness and technology and business meets together. I think of this as the intention economy, right? Mm. It's this, all of this to me is a crisis of consciousness. It's not resources or access or compute power. It's what are we using technologies for? What are we trying to do with it? If it's just to bolster, you know, the, the price of shares, um, that's mostly held concentrated in a few shareholders, of course, it's going to create inequality. And it's going to become exponential over time because these technologies are advancing at exponential rate. So that's why I don't believe the techno optimists who say, oh, just better technologies will solve everything. Mm -hmm. I, I think it helps, but that's a little bit Pollyanna-ish to me because mm -hmm. the truth is technologies don't spread democratically or equally. They'll end up in the hands of a few at first. And mm -hmm. we're going to basically create a human divide, not just mm -hmm. an information gap, but a cybernetic one. Those that get early access to the next gen Dolly 2s or AI engines basically become a new species. They become new superhumans with the power to, to change the world instantly and will go so far beyond the capabilities of other humans by the time those trickle down to the cost levels and access they can get. We're going to create beyond a digital divide. We're going to create basically, like I said, a cybernetic divide. You know, mm. that's really important to think about. Like, I love how OpenAI is trying to launch things like Dolly 2 in a different business model, hopefully maybe more for public accessibility than just one superhero CEO founder that has ownership over everything becomes a mega trillionaire, right? Um, my model for all of these is how permaculture shapes design. I think money, like water, like blood, these are resources that are meant to flow throughout a system, not get pulled up and held in just the hands of one tree one person, one organization. So it's about the health of the overall ecosystem. And yeah, one thing, I, I guess I will say this, even scaling of people up into the right forever probably doesn't make sense. This is a bit darker, but maybe we you should- You mean population? Yes, maybe uh, we should hit peak human. Mm -hmm. Maybe COVID is mother nature's attempt at spring cleaning. Maybe, depending how we build things out, the world's a better place with only 3 million people, not. 10, you know, th those are things I do wonder sometimes about, um, you know, I like to think that we can create more abundance and resources to support more people, but, um, there's very much the possibility that, uh, as things shift more radically, we do have to right size population and balance with what the planet can bear.
and mm -hmm. maybe right size with our intention of how we scale population as well. Originally, we created kids because we wanted labor units. What if mm -hmm. we don't? What if we don't need that same motivation for how it is that we grow population anymore too? Yeah, you're more of a Star Trekker or Star War? Um, I like to believe in Star Trek. I think a lot of times we get there through a lot of Star Wars though. Yeah. You know, so humans, we don't have a great track record of uh, yeah. you know, kind of up-leveling ourselves. We tend to have moments of massive collapse and then growing from there. So yeah. I do think things get a lot worse than they do get better. But yeah. that could be one of the ways we undo systems too. There's a famous saying too, I think it was Adrian Marie Brown, like you don't dismantle the house of the master using the tools that the master uses. So wait, 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 one more time. What did you say? It's along the lines, I'm butchering it a little bit, but you can't dismantle the house of the master with the tools of the master. So that's an uh -huh. argument that we're not going to create better capitalism through just regular capitalism ways. Mm -hmm. It might take the collapse of some things and mm. before we can kind of, you know, rebuild it out of the ashes. So mm. just historically, I do think that's how humans have had it. We tend to go sort of like, you know, sometimes three steps forward, four steps back, then another five steps forward. Um, that's been our history. We kind of need shit to hit the fan before we do things. Um, mm. But, you know, uh, from a long-term perspective, maybe that's what's needed. That's interesting. Because I, so this is what I gather a little bit your, mm -hmm. about your narrative, since we're talking mm -hmm. about stories, right? Mm -hmm. By the way, everything you said, I agree. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope that's not the case, but mm -hmm. that's maybe what's predictable. So mm -hmm. I think this is my read on this is macro, you're an optimist, but yeah. the micro, you may, you know, like, hey, this may go, go dark a little bit, go cynical a bit before it go up. Is that yeah. an accurate read? It is because just generally things go in cycles and, you know, you're talking about my email, uh, my handle was time change and it's kind of funny because it's my name with typos. I used mm -hmm. to get that typo and I was like, I'm going to own that because I think there's some truth in it. The only thing constant over time is change and, um, change is scary. Uncertainty shifts from what we know, but change is also the fertile soil for where growth comes from as well. Right. And so these periods of the pendulum swinging, I, I just see in history patterns of swinging of centralization to decentralization, right? Um, you know, from the, the center to the edge, back and forth, back and forth, um, scarcity, abundance, anxious, avoidant. It's always just these pendulums going back and forth. And that's, um, maybe that is how we grow, how we grow, how we evolve. Mm. Mm. I can take this to a lot of different directions, but one thing I want to ask you, cause you had coined this phrase, I really love the crisis of consciousness. So if everything is about the intentionality of those who invented tools and those who use the tools, the tools themselves are neutral, but there, that's another point I could, I could, I could, uh, we can go down that rabbit hole later. So what are some of the ways that you've seen that would address the crisis of consciousness? If that's the root of all of these symptoms that we see, um, I have my response, but I'm curious to know what's yours. Um, it's the work that you and others are doing. How do we get people more tuned into their why? How do we get people more familiar and integrated and healed with their core wounds? How do we shift out of maybe scarcity survival mode into more abundance, right? And service. The whole human condition is we're battling our firmware 
you know, from our <laughs> lizard and monkey brain, basically the root from where we have is eat, don't get eaten, do anything at all it takes to get an advantage to spread your genes to the next generation. And that explains so much of human behavior because that's our animal survival brain. That's what our genes are programmed to do. Yet we've got this higher consciousness, right? From our brains, our souls that um, can up level from there, you know, kind of be thinking more system level of service level can think beyond just our individual self-interest. So it's always that parallel battle between the two. And that is the beauty of this whole human experiment, right? If we just listen to the animal traits of survival and scarcity, we will be Star Wars. And if we can collectively and individually, you know, upshift, maybe we can create Star Trek, right? Mm. So that's, that's the, that's the funny challenge of this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, funny story. A friend of mine is organizing a retreat among his close circles. He's a founder. He's, you know, very well off, has runs a company in value at, you know, a couple billion dollars. He put in the agenda, uh, of an evening section, you know, we'll brainstorm how to have more power, more money and have joy mainlining to our veins. It's obviously a joke, okay. but I think there's a grain of truth in how he's thinking about the world. <laughs> so for me, it was like, huh, that was really interesting. I would never phrase it that way. <laughs> I wouldn't come out of my mouth, but yeah, I just thought it was like so a really revelatory of how he's thinking about the world. There's something to that. And doesn't that even tie into, do you remember the movie, The Matrix? Mm -hmm. The Matrix, AIs. So then machines figured out, oh, this is how we mainline, you know, these things directly into human consciousness, right? It's a big simulation, right? So there, there's that sort of funny thing there is where does it end? Um, I've usually seen often the altruism, the giving back the service happens later in life after somebody, you know, wins all the prizes, accumulates all the things. And it's kind of like, you know, you play the game as, as aggressively as you can, then you win the game, then you turn around and give it all back. Um, maybe that's part of the nature of it is I've, I've heard the phrase too, that enlightenment is a rich person's game because otherwise you're in survival scarcity mode, you don't have time for all of that, but might there be other ways, other models that we can think about how we're also in service or connection on the way up, not just once you hit the mountaintop. Right. So I do think that's the type of work you're doing and others are doing is, you know, help people figure out their why a little bit earlier. Wouldn't it be great if business school orientation was men's and women's circles, plant medicine, deep self-discovery work as part of an MBA curriculum so that, you know, we're each questioning what is the why behind just the finance theory and getting a job at Bain or whatever it is. I love that because you're a graduate of GSB. So, and I've talked about is like, Hey, how do we put more personal and spiritual work into MBA curriculums going forward? How do we help people turn more, tune more into their, their why than just the what? I think that will be the future. It's something I'm trying to help fund and create at CIAS, California Institute of Integral uh, Sciences, was how could we design the exec MBA program for people like you and me that might have gotten a bit more awakening later in life? Because as this happened, like, there's no school for this. Where do I go? It's not quite exactly what you figure out like an exec MBA program. What if there could be? What if there was a certificate or degree program for people who get more of this calling later in life? It's one of the things I work on on the side in my nonprofit and impact work. You know? Oh, tell us more about that. I mean, that's very resonant 
I, I love that idea. And I think, let's see, how do I articulate this? We teach what we need most is one of my personal beliefs. So the fact that I'm talking about consciousness, not because I am enlightened, because I grapple with these things, yeah, the, the ego and, and also the higher self, you know, I, I hope that I'm conscious enough to be more enlightened most of the time, but in reality, you know, it's a pendulum swing and it requires for me outside people to say, Hey, listen, you are a little bit of, uh, you know, believing in your own bullshit too much. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. And <laughs> all that. Right. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. In my, I guess, philanthropic or, or impact work, there's a few areas I support. Uh, one of them is legalizing psychedelic medicine, supporting maps and others. Um, the second is helping with, uh, the culture and resources and narrative around end of life. Uh, and third is on supporting natural farming, regenerative agriculture, permaculture. And the last is with CIAS, California Institute of Miracle Studies, trying to like fund and create a consciousness MBA, I guess, equivalent or conscious leadership program. Um, and like I said, basically out of self-interest, I'd love to help design the program I wish I had for myself, you know, for these questions, I, I probably would want to be a student at this too, but think like the, something like an exact MBA program where it's rooted also in personal transformation, you know, spiritual growth, consciousness, but also the, okay, now what, so what, how do I tie these things into my day job or my career or purpose? Um, where does that intersect, whether it's at my existing career or, or fund or job or organization or uh, something new that I do. And um, I'd love your input, uh, any of your oh, audience. You know, I, like, what, would you, what would you want to see in such a program? You know, <laughs> Going back, let me reciprocate. Let me know mm -hmm. how I can support you know, the realization of that. Uh, I'm a, as you know, huge believer, practitioner of transformation. I love yeah, this right. work. I, and, and, and I love empowering leaders because in my mind, for me, leaders, if I impact one leader, yeah. all their people, everyone they touch, you know, propagates throughout. Totally. You know, so totally. I'm a huge believer. Like there yeah. is still a way to uh, shift consciousness for the adults. I'm a huge believer in adult yeah. education. Big time. Big time. Yeah. What I've seen with a lot of my friends is this happens quite a bit after age 40, you know, is sort of shifting towards the more of service and consciousness and everything else. And so I imagine this might be a program that's one or two years that's designed for people in that stage of life. Um, and uh, like I mentioned, a lot of it's about, all right, if we start to get these downloads or these inklings of downloads, how do we support that? How do we hear from amazing guest speakers and masters in the field about what are newer models? Um, what are, you know, uh, better governance structures? Who are other examples of people doing this? What are ways to infuse more consciousness with leadership, with business, with investment? What does conscious capitalism start to look like when practiced? Who are examples and case studies of this, right? And on top of this, deeply immersive and, and transformative you know, at the personal level too, might it mean going overseas and doing plant medicine together? Maybe it might be doing breath work and spiritual practice together as well. Um, it'd be really cool to see what could be possible, you know? Yeah, for sure. A hundred percent behind you, my friend. Thank you. Um, well, actually quick question there. So my friend and I, we're all believers of transformation. Mm -hmm. One school of thought is, hey, 
uh, adult education, everything mm-hmm. that I just mentioned, you know, the people of influence and, and resources, they can impact a whole lot more people. That's one school of thought. And then the school yeah. of thought is, yeah, the adults, they're kind of like done. They, they're mm-hmm. they're going to do what they're going to do. Let's, you know, support the, the younger mm-hmm. generation because they're more malleable. They're, they're not yet have these uh, indoctrination, yeah. you know, from early childhood and so forth. What's your perspective on adult versus youth? Oh, I love this. I think it's yes and. We, we need both. And what I mean by that is, I want to see people who are successful in their field, capitals of industries, cultural influencers, et cetera, you know, they have their awakening and they shift their identity and become role models because they help to spread the message, right? They also normalize it and, and help define who our heroes are. We don't want just our heroes to be this person made a trillion dollars and built a rocket and sent himself to Mars, right? What if heroes are much more like the Dalai Lama and, you know, what if someday Kim Kardashian is espousing, you know, spiritual growth and, and more meditation than the, the latest makeup brand or something like that. I, I'd love to see that. Then that helps influence the next generation as well. And on top of that is on, you know, things that influence the youth, whether it's in Discord or TikTok or Minecraft or YouTube or whatever else, and in schools, they're being taught principles for connection, healing consciousness, even at a young age, that'll help shape, you know, what they're interested in. I'd love to see meditation as, as standard as recess, or, you know, maybe even, um, authentic vulnerable sharing as a standard practice as, um, you know, physical ed, right? What if emotional ed is the same as physical ed, you know, programs like that. So it is yes. And to both of those, um, we need the adults and leaders for that. We absolutely need to change what's in our curriculums for the youth as well. Yeah, because you're a father, so you experienced this firsthand too. Mm-hmm. To me, I mean, I'm a product of our traditional education system, and then they teach a lot of content. Mm-hmm. And for me, some of the core human skills, communication, who are you, how do you manage your internal chatters, these are core skill that we use forever are not taught in school, which is baffling to me if I really, you know, now that I'm anyways, I'm curious to know your thoughts about that. So yeah, absolutely. I uh, always believed the best legacy, the greatest gift for the future is an integrated, whole, fully expressed, self-aware human being. And, you know, I think Jungian in psychology says, well, Children are born perfect and parents just fuck them up to different degrees. And, you know, there's nothing more dangerous for a child than the unrequited dreams of the parents. So Mm. the more work we do on ourselves, the more healed and integrated we are as parents. I think the, the more we can serve and provide better examples for our children. Right. And, and to have them come into the world with more compassion, empathy, you know, um, self-awareness, consciousness that will directly help shape the future and it's needed because the future might be really rough for them right we're going to go through some of these darker periods we need resilient connected you know kind of purposeful kids right to help get get through that point right yeah thank you for that let me let me take a hard right to that Mm -hmm. uh you use you invest in technologies that help humans to be better, conscious, transformational technologies. 
Um, uh, so there's an idea called transhumanism, right? Technologies enhancing mm -hmm. human capabilities beyond what's natural. So that's yeah. one school of thought. Another school of thought is it's uh, I call it natural actualization, and meaning uh, not, some people call it bioconservatives or bio luddites and so forth. They just want to realize human potential without the artificial tech. Right. Curious to know your thoughts on your since you're a practitioner. What's your um, ideation? How would you articulate? That's a really good perspective. Question. It's something I still wrestle and ponder with a lot as I've gotten more connected with nature, actually through my conscious journey and plant medicines and those things being, you know, I grew up a city and suburban kid that didn't really understand much of nature and gotten much more reconnected through this, you know, kind mm -hmm. of awakening of from focusing on me to connection to we like community, society, then to all, which I view as the planet ecosystem. Mm -hmm. There's often a, this notion that like, oh, nature knows best. Nature is perfect. Just follow nature. Yes. Mm -hmm. And. Nature is also pretty brutal. Nature mm -hmm. is extremely violent and there's no justice in, in nature and there's no equality win, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a pretty brutal side of nature too. Um, nature isn't always the most efficient uh, in ways too. And that's where we create technologies and come up with algorithms and uh, follow those sorts of things. You can also argue our creation of technology is a direct extension of nature. Nature evolved to create us with our big brains that we create these next level tools. And that's also an extension of evolution in nature too. Um, the challenge is that our way of scaling things is different than the way nature scales things. The way mm -hmm. to think of it is nature works in curves and circles and spheres. We work in hard lines and boxes and linear paths and those sorts of things. So they're different modes. Uh oh. Hey Tim, how's the connection over here? Mm. And the way we this is not usually. Oh, sorry. Hey, I, real quick, um, um, say that again, actually, because uh, there was some internet issue. If you don't mind. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so the last I, thing I, I heard, the last thing I heard, nature, nature works in yeah. curves, mm -hmm. and then humans. Mm -hmm working straight lines and edges and, and boxes. Your path. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, um, there's more sometimes efficiency of mass scaling of the human way, but I think nature is better at the interdependent balancing of the overall system that we could learn from. Right. And so I think where I've been going with this is that, um, we have to find some balance point, you know, for this, um, because we're still scaling in a way that's not really good for the planet. And we treat resources as infinite. Techno optimists mm -hmm. say, oh, we'll just get more efficient and we'll be abundant at creating new resources. And that yep. could be true. But like I said, but it does with the risk of leaving a huge chunk of the population and planet behind. And, mm -hmm. you know, one answer to that, some might say is that's okay. We'll just go to Mars and have backup systems and backup options. Yes, perhaps. But I also think, Let's get our own shit right before we go to other planets and go fuck them up with our flawed playbooks. Sorry. So uh -huh. there's, yep. again, like this crisis of consciousness. I think it's about finding balance. And a lot of that is, is the art of life, the art of building businesses, the art of working with people and staying in connection. You know, um, that is something that um, 
is the practice of this whole thing is finding balance. I say that kind of consciously that I'm a hardcore Libra, so maybe that's just the way I'm wired, right? Um, but it, it is actually I don't know that reference. Yeah, because I'm October first is Libra, so it's about the scale. But I've always the, the clue I like to get in nature is balancing of ecosystems, and um, there's this thing in permaculture where the problem is the solution. And I'll give you a quick example: like if you have an issue with say mosquitoes, you don't use mm -hmm. DEET and spray everything. <clears throat> you put in dragonflies or you bring in like frogs that like to eat the mosquito eggs. You, you balance it out in a system-wide way that makes the system better than just take one power tool and try to fix it, right? Because mm -hmm. that's, that's why our medical system is kind of messed up. You use this one superpower tool and then that wipes everything out. But then you need another drug to counterbalance that, which requires mm -hmm. yet another one, right? So it's mm -hmm. just system house of cards feeling as opposed to a super well-designed interdependent system. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's secondary and tertiary effects that we yeah. can hardly predict. And, um, and, uh, with the tools like AI, my hope, the positive intention is that we can then visualize what may be or model rather or maybe the secondary tertiary effects. But since those tools are designed by humans and were naturally flawed, so there lies the, the rub. That's right. And that, that's why it's the, the human practice of upleveling our consciousness and being more compassionate, empathetic, being more system-wide thinkers rather than just hyper-efficiency, hyper-scale, which is important. Like we talked about before, AI is our ultimate child. How we train it, what we ask it to do will be everything, right? Because AI is the engine that can create the most unintended of consequences. That's mm -hmm. what all, you know, dystopian sci-fi is based on, unintended mm -hmm. consequences of these radical exponential power tools, right? Um, and AI can lead to tremendous beauty. Have you been tracking what's going on with Dali 2? You know, um, that, that visualizes professional illustrator level images of whatever you tell it to. Right. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. This is literally like the genie in Aladdin's bottle. You just make a wish and say, I want you to come up with blah, blah, blah. And it does it at increasingly powerful level. Mm -hmm. This is machine amplified creativity. And, mm -hmm. you know, as it continues, there's a superhero you might remember from the DC universe, Green Lantern. Green mm -hmm. Lantern has this like, mm -hmm. power ring, the, right? The ring of power. And it's only limited by Hal's imagination. He'll visualize or say something and the ring just spits it out. That's kind of what's happening. We have, imagine Dolly 2 style engines for every discipline, architecture, mm. poetry, you know, video game design, uh, visual art and illustration. These, as they grow, become the equivalent of Green Lantern's power ring. And then the only thing that's limited by is the seed phrase that we seed it with, right? So, mm. and this notion of like, imagine dolly 2000 the ultimate you know simulation or, or, or visualizer and the ultimate seed phrase at that point is let there be light yep for sure let there be light let me make the universe in seven days yeah that's beautiful um hmm. let's see you know it's rare that i don't have a lot of questions left <laughs> uh, normally, I just have on and on and on the questions. 
So actually, let's since we're fresh back from the burn, if you don't mind, I want to double yeah. click on the burn a bit. Sure. I know the burn this year has been quite a tender spot for you. Mm -hmm. So why do you continue to go back to Burning Man? How many years, then, by the way? 13, 14. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Yeah. So this year, even for me, yeah, third year, mm -hmm. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I want to come back to Burning Man. Yeah. Right? This, this thought is, you know, crossed my mind. And the answer is yes. And I could, because I love transformation, it's such a macro container of transformation. So, so are we going back? But for you, why do you go back year after year? Um, a lot of years I went back because I had friends that want to go for the first time. And I felt this almost responsibility, but also this glee at getting to be a Sherpa or relive the magic for the first time through their eyes. So mm -hmm. there have been many years I went back to go with friends for the first time, you know, to help, like I said, play Sherpa or tour guide or something. So that's been one is spreading that magic, right? But um, since COVID though, I've tasted the joy of what it's been like to have and host micro burns, even mm -hmm. like house party level mini burning mans or regionals. There's the love burn here in Miami where I am now mm -hmm. that, you know, I love about it. Half the people at love burn have never been to burning man and might never be able to go all the way out there, but they can get a taste of what the values, the energy, the lifestyle is from the authentic camps and art cars that go out there. So I'm with you. I, I, I may still go back to burning man. Maybe not as often. I'm even more interested in how do I be an ambassador of the values of burning land and maybe mm -hmm. help spread you know that culture or experience not out to other areas now too mm. well one thing i want to say about you tim is i you know in my research process i google your name and see mm. what shows up and i actually couldn't find much of your public wisdom speeches your your mm. your public ted talks too much mm. and as a personal desire i'll make it public that you know, someone who is on this path, who's so thoughtful, I would love to see more of your content events. So that way people can get your transmission of what's possible because you are a transcendent modern householder hmm. from my Thank perspective, you. right? Thank you you, you are, you, you live life of you know, high consideration, high consciousness in your music, your business, your relationships, even in private conversations. So yeah. I just wish that there's more content about you that's publicly accessible. Thank you for that. That's a really good reminder. It's something I, I wrestle with, to be honest. Um, in my prior years, the first decade or so of venture capital, you know, I was such an underdog. I came from outside the networks and I focused so hard on building quote unquote personal brand and thought leadership and, you know, was always on interviews and writing blog posts or you know, giving talks and got to the point where I kind of got sick of hearing myself. And uh, <sighs> it, it felt like, it felt like work maintaining all these social media profiles and making sure I got posts and likes and mm -hmm. it, it felt really self-indulgent and egotistical. And mm -hmm. I then just went the opposite way and I just kind of quit social media and I stopped posting on Facebook or anything. And I only wanted to post to elevate and celebrate others. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've had a lot of friends say, Hey, you know, you should share more. And I'm trying to figure out a good way to do that. Um, while battling this fear or guilt I have about being self-promotional, 
You know, mm. I, it's something I see in the consciousness and spiritual community is that there's a lot of people like go to a Vipassana retreat and have to post on Instagram. And, and so there's kind of like spiritual egotism or materialism mm -hmm. in there. Mm -hmm. And like some of the most enlightened or greatest teachers I've ever met, you'll never hear about them and their word of mouth only. And, um, I guess there's this sort of saying, if like anybody ever calls him or herself a guru, run the other direction. And so mm -hmm. I guess I've internalized that and, um, kind of taking this to valuing humility and fearful of self-promotionism. And I guess I, my greatest fear is that I'm ever viewed as somebody like more self-promoting or like, you know, you know, humble bragging or, or like, you know, trying to get more followers. And it's something I wrestle with too, because people are also saying, look, stuff that you're going through is worth sharing. Your story is worth sharing. So, you know, maybe I can get your help or your audience's help. And that is how do you find the balance between authentically vulnerably sharing your story in service, but also making sure it's not in too much promotion mode as well. I think you just touch on it. What's the line between self-importance and, and, um, doing it as a way to support others. And the line is what is my intention to promote myself or is my intention to serve? Like yeah. that's to me is the line. Yeah, that's a great, thank you for that reminder. I've always believed in like, I want to serve, but not save anybody. Saving means I think I know what's best for you. Mm -hmm. And you know how we talked about the model is the motivation. Maybe one way to keep pure about it is I'm not necessarily trying to make a living at it for myself. And so if I don't have the pressure of having it to be my income or business, I could be a little bit more gentle with how I do it. You know, again, not feeling the pressure to scale. Um, mm -hmm. maybe doing it more invitationally or organically. So yeah, these are things I dance with is, um, can we separate the way we make income and a living from our life's work? I've always thought that's such a great <laughs> hack. There's the word, but, um, that's something I want for my daughter someday is the way that she can make money doesn't necessarily have to be tied to her true life's passion. And mm. I, I say that because, um, I wanted to be a musician professionally. At one point I had a band that got a development deal with a record label and I read the contract. It broke my heart. It was the worst business deal ever. And it helped me understand why so many artists get taken advantage of and exploited and never make a living. And when I was trying to play music as a living, I hated it. You know, we were the house band at the hard rock hotel in Bali and we had to play, you know, give me one reason by Tracy Chapman, like six times in the same night. Cause somebody in the audience wanted to sing it. And it was like, oh my God. Six times in the same night. Yeah. You know, wow. when you're, when you're paid for the gig, then it's different than just, uh, when you're hired as an entertainer for what the crowd wants versus paid for maybe how you're expressing what you want to say can be really different. And sometimes having to rely on money for your art can suck the joy out of it. And so, mm. you know, there's a lot of times the money pressure, the business pressure can pervert sort of like the the art or the craft that you're working on. Right. And so mm. something I think a lot about is what are ways to relieve the pressure of the money from the purity of the intention of the art. Yep. Derek Siever says something similar. He said, don't make, earn money, uh, from your passion. So he, he advocates exactly what you said, separate the two. However, let me actually push back a bit. Uh, another school of thought, I think Jim Rome popularized it. 
uh, was it Joseph Campbell? I don't remember exactly who, but he said, if you um, combine your passion to how you make a living, that's all your bliss. That's that's the dream. So, right. so you're not you're you're definitely more of a Derek Seaver camp than, you know, it's it's bliss. It's is you know you 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 never have to work again if you combine how you make a living and your passion together. Yeah, it's true. Um, both can be right, and there's the Japanese notion of ikigai, right? That mm -hmm. which you love, that's what you're good at, that's what you, you can get paid for, the intersection of those. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess this is often the stuff I help people brainstorm too, are ways that, you know, you can find success financially or other things through doing what you love. And there's a lot of like little mixtape or mashups on there, different hacks you can do. Um, the model might be different than what you thought. So for example, to this, I love joining nonprofit boards to help them tweak their model. The usual nonprofit model is you go through the death march of hitting up your donors year after year and barely mm -hmm. eating out enough to keep going. But mm -hmm. I like joining nonprofits specifically to help them come up with earned revenue lines from content or gatherings or tools or resources or, or whatever else that they can make revenue like a business, but it's still a nonprofit so that they don't have to only live off donations, right? So that's, mm -hmm. that's an example of a hybrid model. I love hybrid models, non-obvious models, mashups things that can open new doors than just, you know, yes, no, black, white, one, zero, I guess back to synthesis. That's sort of the thing I'm most interested in. Tim it has been such a, actually, you know what, before I conclude, is there if people listening up to here, what's one thing, you know, like, Hey, remember nothing at all. What's one thing you want them to leave them with? Mm, wow. That's always a, a tricky one. I guess it, for me, it, it's going to be you know, who would you want in your tribe? Not necessarily, um, you know, the, the titles or the profession, but maybe energetically, what kind of people do you want in your tribe? And write it down, make a list. Like, these are the kind of people I'd really want to be able to grow old with, would have my back. And that for me, has been the, the greatest gift. So I, I hope everybody gets to have a feeling of finding and, and building or becoming part of their, their tribe. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being an embodied noble warrior. And I really mean it. You're someone who is a learned student, but you also walking the walk. Thank you. No matter so what kind of capacity that I see you, keynote speaking or small exchanges, in between spaces, mm. you know, who you are to me is someone who is one, number one, multi-talented, ridiculous, and uh, super articulate, but also super, super thoughtful. And thank you so much for sharing your, your ideas, your wisdom, what you're grappling with and what you see as the future. So I so appreciate you as a, as a man, but also yeah. as a human being. Thank you so much. It means the world to me. Thanks for the honor of being here with you. Thanks for the chance to, um, also learn from you. Yeah. People inspire what you're doing. So thank you.